0: he said, well, don't be so stupid. How are you going to, well, how are you going to do anything to it? How are you even going to lift it? How are you going to plank it? How are you going to dry it? And why?
1: Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. This episode of The Filter will be different from others in that it's going to begin by focusing on a single concrete object created by master cabinet maker Hamish Lowe. And like those movies that begin with a snapshot of the present and then go back in time to tell how the action led up to the moment, we're going to begin with a caption posted recently to a woodworking blog called Lost Art Press. Here's the caption. More than 43 feet long and 5,000 years old, the top of the table made by the Fenland Black Oak Project is the culmination of more than 30 years of research, trial and error in milling and drying bog oak. So there's a lot in that caption to unpack, but maybe you could start us out by explaining what is bog oak?
0: 5,000 years ago, well, between 4,800 and 5,500 years ago, much of Great Britain was very densely forested by gigantic oak trees. Well, oak trees, yew and pines, but the oaks were absolutely spectacular. At that time, rapid climate change led to a rise in sea level relative to land level, which is sort of what we're going through now. And this caused the rivers to back up and flood these ancient high forests. So these magnificent trees, and they really were magnificent, died standing in water. It flooded and then receded and flooded and receded. And it created this sort of mushy silt, which was once the forest floor. These trees then died standing and eventually fell into the silt and through a process of anaerobic conditions they've been preserved until now then sort of fast forward to the 16th century when dutch engineers first started draining the fens and these this fen shrinks the peat shrinks and these trees are being exposed to agriculture so they get hit by uh, farm machinery and then very kind fenland landowners with a social conscience phone me and say look we've we've hit one of these magnificent trees Uh, is it of any interest to you and i drop everything and go and have a look at it but over, over the years, these uh, it's, it's known as bog oak, but they basically preserved oak trees. And normally they would just be left to the side of the field and or burnt. And as soon as they become exposed to oxygen, they start to deteriorate rapidly. Preserving bog oaks are, is exactly the same as the difficulties they were having with the Mary Rose, you know, the Henry VIII's flagship. Only, of course, bog oaks are four and a half thousand years older. So um, people have understood the significance of this material. The issue with it has been actually trying to preserve it. So this is because I'm a child of the Fens. I was brought up in the Fens. I always knew about the existence of these trees. And I thought, well, I'm just because occasionally you could get it right or you would be able to dry very small pieces and the timber that it yields is just magnificent so i thought well it's worth it must be worth actually trying to investigate whether they can actually be planked and dried clearly there's a finite supply of this material and i know now having done it for 30 years that it's definitely its emergence is in decline And the timber it yields is absolutely beautiful. I mean, this is an example of what I'm looking for. So that is bark.
1: So for the audience, I'm just going to jump in here because a lot of people will be listening to this on the audio and then we'll release a couple video clips. Hamish is holding up a, a piece of bog oak right now, so make sure you go to the website and check out some of the video to see what this looks like. Go ahead.
0: The thing is, there are lots and lots and lots of bog oaks the the issue is is you have to try and identify whether they are worth investing in you know these these forests were very very dense so if you come across one you will come across hundreds basically the the thing is not all of them have been preserved in a way that they can be preserved they can be um, dried so I'm looking for something really really specific and I've learned this over 30 years of trial and error a lot of error. And what I'm looking for is this. So this is, if you can believe it, this is actually, this is the bark, you know, and, and occasionally you see reeds preserved. So I'm looking for something that has clearly been submerged in the in the mushy silt very, very quickly. And if you look at the end grain here, if there are any sort of woodworkers that are interested you can see the density i mean that is straight off the saw and look at the density of that and it's absolutely jet black there's a um, polished piece somewhere up here
1: absolutely gorgeous yeah
0: see the med- the medullary vessels in that it's um uh, bog oak has a very wide medullary vessel so when it's quarter sawn when the annular rings are at ninety degrees to the face. Can you see those annular rings there?
1: I, I do those. That must have been a huge piece, right? Given how flat those look.
0: Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was the, well. The tree. The trees are absolutely enormous. And there's some here which I've just cut. This is probably one of the rarest pieces of wood in the world. This is rippled, rippled, five thousand year old bog oak. I don't know if you can see the figure in that, but it's. Um, this is just spectacular. I've just cut it. And these were these are cut for when, whenever I empty a kiln. I obviously grade it and um, and and pick the timber that I want for myself. But also I pick for what's called tone wood. So these are a pair of book match pairs of um, for, for guitars. So that that's actually sliced out of a much thicker board. So that 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 was like you know just one of those. And then it, and then I've sliced it so the grain matches perfectly i mean in actual fact musical instrument makers and the musicians who play them and they're virtuoso musicians they're even more obsessed with bog oak than i am if you can believe it it's very very significant material for them it has unique tone apparently not my area of expertise but also it's the density this is a this is a section So there are 38 to 40 annular rings per inch. So all those little lines you can see on there, those are annular rings. I mean, this is incredibly dense material. It weighs over a thousand kilos a cubic meter. So it sinks.
1: How would that compare to, say, regular oak that you'd cut down today? How much denser is it?
0: Regular oak would be about 700 kilos a cubic meter. So this is as heavy, as dense as all the tropical exotics all the rosewoods it's actually heavier than ebony on occasion 1166 kilos a cubic meter is the heaviest i've ever found and and the, the thing about that is it means that craftsmen people that work with wood can be very accurate we can produce really really crisp details so i'm not we are not interested in bog oak because it's 5,000 years old. We're interested in it because it has many more unique characteristics. Tone is one, but it's really about density, visual impact. If you use bog oak in conjunction with and in contrast with other native hardwoods, it's just beautiful. It's just such classy material. And the fact is, once, once you've dried a plank of bog oak, you've preserved it in perpetuity. That's it. It's, it's saved. And everything we make, everything a woodworker makes usually starts, well, I would say 99% of the time, starts out as being a plank of wood. So it's, yeah, I can't help myself really. You know, if a landowner goes going back to where we started, if a landowner says to me, look, I've just hit hit one, then I sort of tend to drop everything and go. You know, the Bog Oak Road is not paved with gold. It's a bit of a labor of love, really. I'm always looking for. I mean, I can't tell you what it feels like to just cut into this, you know, and find this. And you just it's the most it's just the most wonderful thing. I mean, this will be turned into a seriously beautiful, exquisite musical instrument. And it's just, it's just such a nice thing. It's such a satisfying thing to be able to do, you know, to, to sort of to save it and to be so sort of creative with it. And, and, the, and you know, this, I, supp- I mean, that sort of tells you a little bit about Bog Oak generally. But in 2012, a landowner friend of mine whose land happens to sit within at the correct distance below sea level, where all the conditions must have been right for preserving these forests. Not only that, but the forests themselves must have been just extraordinary. The trees that are yielded from this chap's land. His name is Peter Shropshire. The, the forests that were on his land 5,000 years ago must have been incredible, like because the trees that come from his fields are colossal. This tree, or this part of this tree, was 45 foot long, and we didn't know which way up it was. When I first went to see it, because I normally mark these trees out into 12 foot lengths, and they usually have pockets of rot, or they're broken up, because the trees, not all the trees would have fallen splat and been covered over completely into a sort of airless grave. They would Parts of the tree would have been exposed, if you imagine them all falling on top of one another. But this one was so huge that it just pushed and crushed everything in its path out of the way. And its apocalyptic descent must have just submerged itself. And that explains... The degree of preservation on this particular tree and we call it the jubilee oak because it was excavated in 2012 so i looked at this thing and i marked it out to 12 foot long and i was with another craftsman friend of mine who quite often comes with me and um i said you know i don't think we should cut this and he said what on earth do you mean i said well i think we should try and leave this this length and he said well don't be so stupid how are you gonna well, how are you going to do anything to it? How are you even going to lift it? How are you going to plank it? How are you going to dry it? And why? You know, I said, well, let's, we should make a tabletop out of it because it's so straight. I said to him, which way up is it? And he said, and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, which is the canopy end and which is the root ball end? And he said, well, I don't know. They're the same. And I said, yeah, but Bob, this is 44 foot long and we don't know which way up it is. What does that tell you? And he said, ah. This was only a small part of a much, much bigger tree. Amazing though it is, this is actually only the top section. I said, well, there you are. That's why it's so well preserved. That's why it's, you know, the penny sort of dropped at that point. And I said, I think we shouldn't cut it. So we didn't. We wrapped it and reburied it. And he said, well, now what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've, you know, we've got to try and find some money this is going to cost a fortune and I phoned a company called Norwood which make sawmills because obviously how are you going to sawmill something that big and their tagline is we can plank any length so I phoned them up and said well look we've we you know we found a 14 meter tree and he said uh, well I think you've got your measurements wrong I think you mean 14 feet I said no no it's 14 meters long it's a fen and black oak it's sub fossilized it's prehistoric you know and and he said oh so anyhow, I spoke to him in about half an hour, and he said, "Look, I'll tell you what. I'll phone you back. I'll speak to head office, and I'll phone you back." And um, I thought, "Well, that's the last word we'll here of that." And he lit. He phoned me back, and he said, "Yeah, we'll fly you over a brand new mill. We'll fly it over. We'll supply everything you need, all the extension beds." And because the point is, is you can't, you know, you can't really put something that big onto a static machine. You have to bring the static machine to the tree. So we assembled this sawmill and they are designed to be mobile these sawmills so we assembled it in the field next to the tree basically dug up the tree again and then you know that's that's how we how we um... but the but it but the point is from having been told that it was a crazy idea and it is you know it's a, it's a it there's a very fine line between creating something brilliant and being insane Do you understand?
1: A lot of that obviously has to do with the... Uh, risk that you're taking there. You're taking a significant amount of risk digging this up. It seemed to you that it was solid and intact, but from what I understand, you don't know for sure uh, if that's going to be the case for the whole piece of wood. And it's also possible that something will get damaged as you're going about your process. And from what I understand is particularly, well, you can imagine particularly tricky to try to work with such a long piece of intact wood and try to manipulate it without it getting damaged no
0: there were there were lots and lots of unknowns the biggest one was would it dry all right you know what would the boards actually be like you know every time you go do a little, another stage of this project it becomes much more viable but the big one was can we dry it well enough so that it we can retain it full length and when you think these boards shrink half of their thickness and a quarter of their width. And you've got to allow that shrinkage to occur, but keep it flat enough to be able to get a smooth, flat surface over 13 meters. It's really, really difficult. So there was a, there's a lot of risk involved, but it's not just risk, it's the idea. You know, it would have been so easy to have just cut this tree into 12-foot lengths and process it in the same way. But there is something about wood which is very compelling. This is what I mean about the difference between creating something amazing or being insane. I think that woodworkers tend to be very, very compelled by the material. Well, actually not just woodworkers. I think people that collect anything as well. The material itself is a big part of the inspiration. And actually... This whole idea of craftsmanship is something that you see, I said to, because this is this table, when we finished it, is going to spend the first 18 months of its life at Ely Cathedral. Ely Cathedral, they call it the Ship of the Fens. It's a magnificent building, and it sits raised above the Fens in the Isle of Ely. So the Ely was an island within flooded Fenland. So the, the idea is that the table will be located in and when it's surrounded by fields which occasionally yield this material but I said to the dean going into the cathedral the people that built this cathedral they would have built it to the glory of God of course but I was trying to explain that the people that built this cathedral were the same as me you know they did it because they were just compelled to do it as well as they possibly can. I think a craftsman, if you like, or particularly someone that works with wood, possibly, is um, very compelled to do what they do. So, you know, even if they're supplying sawmills to the woodwork trade, I think they sort of understand that, yes, this idea is slightly insane. But the fact is, we're trying to show and share what these ancient high forests were like and trying to save the very best example I've ever seen in 30 years for future generations in the best way we possibly can. We're trying to show how straight these trees were
1: You've talked about how you found the, you know, you got the call and went and investigated the, uh, the bog oak and then brought the mill in and sliced it up right there on the spot. Could you bring us up to speed with the, the process and what happens next and the challenges from when you begin to remove it from the field?
0: Yeah, well, we planked it um, in the field and then a very kind sponsor Turned up with an enormous articulated lorry. And a group of students from the Building Crafts College in London, who I've been working with on this project, they all came up for the sawmilling event in the field. So they helped me load all these planks. We had 10, 10 consecutive planks from this tree. We loaded it all on the lorry. It was then transported to London, right, you know. Um, In the east end of the city, and we had built a dehumidifying kiln, a machine in order to dry these planks, which is quite an undertaking. You know, it's a huge structure and very, very complicated bit of technology in order to be able to extract the water evenly over, you know, 14 metres
1: could you describe what that looks like? Because when I picture a kiln, I picture something very different from what uh, the thing that you built looks like.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's basically a gigantic wooden box. And in that box, you lay the planks flat. And then in between each plank, you put what we call stickers, which are, and in this case, we used a particular size of sticker. So you've What you're actually doing is the box is sealed with a vapor barrier and is insulated. And within that box, there are several heaters and three dehumidifiers and a lot of circulating fans. So the idea is you stack these boards all on top of one another with sticks in between. And you create a series of baffles, if you like, whereby you can be absolutely certain that the air is circulating Throughout every part of the board, but is also being passed through surfaces which can get cold. And what that means is if you heat up a sealed environment with wood in it, because air molecules expand, they will have the capacity to hold moisture. And the, if you heat up a piece of wood, it will release its moisture into the air. Once that air becomes saturated, there's nowhere for the water to go so the wood will retain it so i can i can adjust how much water the wood is releasing by taking water out of the air basically and the way i do that is that air is circulating around surfaces which i can make cold
1: like a condenser in an ac basically the wood-
0: it is a, it is a condenser yeah so so we're de- we're reducing the humidity we're dehumidifying the air and then it comes out of the kiln in tubes and i measure it so i know in theory and i i can adjust the heat obviously and i can adjust the relative humidity in the kiln and that's what's taken so long the first difficulty you have with processing this material is finding out if the trees worth investing in the second one is actually processing it in the right way so after nine months we'd extracted 397 gallons of water which equates to four gallons of water per cubic foot which is two-thirds of its sawn volume and it shrunk by half its thickness a quarter of its width the boards and they even shrunk six inches in their length So it's just a colossal amount of shrinkage and huge volumes of water. So then we built what we call a straddle or a ladder, long ladder, because we then had to work out whether these boards were flat enough to be able to make a tabletop.
1: So before we before we get to that, just a, a question there about the the process. How did you decide when you know how long you were going to do that for, and when was the right time to say, okay, it's ready, ready now to work with?
0: Well, yeah, basically what you have to do with when wood is absolute fibre saturation or when it's green, as it's sometimes called, normally, then you. Um, that doesn't apply to bog oak of course because it's it's seasoned it's just got very very wet what you, you're you trying to match the equilibrium moisture content in the wood to the environment it's going to stay in so so in but also if you so in other words we can measure with measuring equipment they're called uh, moisture meters we can measure the moisture content of the wood and i know that Really, I need to be somewhere around below 10 percent moisture content, because that means if you dry bog oak to below 10 percent, its capacity to change its shape due to changes in relative humidity is reduced. So I always dry below 10 percent. And it will be, this This wood, when it's dry, will be subjected to changes in relative humidity because it's going to go on a lorry and it's going to go in a cathedral and then it's going to go into a an, you know, a conference centre or another public space, possibly at some point in its life. It, so it's about, we're trying to, yes. So basically, throughout this whole drying process, I had to take a lot of measurements and make a lot of adjustments to the fabric of the kiln, actually, because you can measure, if, if you imagine, Lots of planks, you can put a moisture meter on it in lots of different places. And it was clear to me that we weren't drying it evenly enough. So we had to make lots of alterations in that regard. But it's quite easy to work to know when it's ready, if you see what I mean, by just measuring its moisture content. And if it matches the relative humidity and the sort of space it's going to be going in, then you're there. I mean, when we have to design, if you're making anything out of wood, you must design it in such a way that you can allow it. To expand and contract because you'll never stop that and you, you cannot even if you encased it in concrete it would crack the concrete it's in it's it's you know you will not stop it it's as simple as that
1: so you do the drying and then you go to take it off the uh out of the the box that you have built for the dehumidification and you take it out and then walk me through what are the next steps here uh-
0: yeah well the next steps are because we did all this without raising any sort of money or anything you know we just because we don't know if the project's viable until they're dry so um so we then had to try and determine whether we could without going to the colossal expense of actually planing them flat we had to um assess whether they would be able to be planed flat and that's actually a lot more difficult than you might think so we built a straddle And we were able to lay the boards on top of that a dead level surface with various datums at 600 mil centers and we so we were able to assess the shape of the board each board and we selected the boards that we would be using for the top because we had 10 of them and we only needed four or five yeah so having having then said yes the drawing has been a success we can actually make this thing you know the project is viable then we had to go to a a huge amount of trouble to design it you know to design this object and find somewhere for it to go you know know, what were we going to actually build and how were we going to mitigate the liability of its size because public spaces nowadays have to be multifunctional you know, you have to be habit. it. There has to be empty in some days if they're filming in there or it has to have exhibitions. It, You know, it has to have festivals. You know, all every conceivable kind of activity has to occur within these buildings. So we had to mitigate the liability of its size. And we've done that by creating a gigantic drop leaf table. So the two outer boards fold down. So the whole thing becomes really narrow and can be. It's all on, it's movable. The whole thing, you can take the planks off the top and they will actually fit through a domestic doorway. You know, you just need 14 metres either side of it. So, so that you can take the planks off and then you can divide the understructure into two equal parts. And it's, on, it's designed in such a way that you can actually move those two equal parts independently of one another. And you can wheel it like a wheelbarrow, even though it's a very, very heavy structure. It's got a very sophisticated type of wheeled system which means you can we would literally be able to push the whole thing to the side of a space so it becomes a serving table you know for refreshments if there's if that's required or for display or whatever.
1: I want to get more into the how the the building of the table itself, but before that you mentioned that you were needed to know if it would be worth the cost of the planing. I don't know too much about milling, but a little bit. In my experience anyway, planing has not necessarily been a great expense. Was it because of the length, the hardness? What made planing such an expensive part of this project?
0: Well, before you start machining a piece of wood, you have to, first of all, know what you're building. Now that may sound, you know, you've got to design the object. And that may sound quite simple, but you have to understand these boards, when they were dry, became incredibly valuable. So a little bit too important for one person to have sort of carte blanche of, about designing an object. They, the designer maker community, I think, felt that they, they were too important. And we need, so we needed to set up a sort of design team, if you like. And all this does take quite a long time. And you can imagine trying to design an object by committee. And it's, you know, you had if you're going to do that, the designers had to have a great deal of humility. And they have to be very sympathetic to what we're trying to do. You know, we're not trying to satisfy the needs of a client here. We're actually trying to save something, a national treasure, really. So it, it has, it did become quite important. And that takes time and money. And you know, we decided the the understructure should be bronze, because the ages are similar. The trees were well, actually, it's a bit a little bit tenuous. The time in history is transitional between stone and bronze age, more more stone age than bronze age, I think. So um, I don't think bronze was being produced in Europe at that time, but I think it was being produced in the Far East. So anyway, it, the, the whole point is is that the structure had to be dismantlable because it's a huge object. You've got to be able to move it. You've got to be practical. And wood doesn't really lend itself to being taken apart and put back together again. So we decided, or the design team decided, that metal was really the solution, the sensible material to use for an understructure, a bit like a Meccano kit. And which was the most appropriate metal? Well, bronze, really. They are absolutely compatible in some way, you know, from an aesthetic point of view. So there was the design... And that, and that is expensive. Then we had to, once you've designed something, then you can start thinking about how to actually build it. And you're right. You know, we we had to create, we had to make, well, first of all, we got in touch with a company called SCM who make woodworking equipment. And we said, look, we need a planer, a very, very wide planing machine. And we also need one that we can make a bed, a planer bed that had to be twice the length of the planks because you've obviously got to put the thing through the machine so we had to make a planer bed which was 100 foot long and it had to go up and down with this planing machine so that you can imagine the expense of trying to do that the expense of trying to find somewhere to do that and the machinery and creating the bed and also the way that we've joined it together is a a bit of a unique technique because when we milled planks and we first took them off the saw we laid them side by side and it was a bit of an epiphany really because when you laid them side by side they were extraordinary looking because you don't see planks that long and they were so straight Straight but sort of, how can I describe this? Straight but organic, organics, you know, so they, so although overall they were very straight, there were lots of sort of wobbles along there, obviously the outer annular ring edge of the tree.
1: So here in uh, out uh, this way they call that a live edge where you have that not perfectly straight edge and if people are trying to picture it from the the photos this was not just like a regular live edge but there was there's a lot of curve on the edges of each of these pieces to begin with so that when you lay them out next to each other they're not just going to match up perfectly there'd be if you were to put them together without doing any work there would be a lot of giant gaps there as they pushed up against each other. And then on the other hand, if you wanted to make uh, the joins straight, I would imagine you would be losing a ton of material from uh, from each of the boards if you wanted to, you know, chop off entirely that live edge part, right?
0: Less, less so with the Jubilee Oak, of course, because it was extraordinarily straight. In fact, we have left the two outer boards, because the top is made up of five boards in total. One, one of the boards goes down to virtually nothing in the middle in terms of its width. It's just a little feature that we, we quite liked. But yes, no, you're right, of course. When you put two live edge boards together, there's going to be gaps. It's never going to match up properly. But when you think, I can't emphasize enough how staggeringly straight these were. And they were very, very beautiful. You know, that sight was very surreal and unusual. And we thought that's what we're going to do. We've got to retain the integrity of the shapes of these boards. So we're going to sort of scribe them together or actually uh, inlay what we're calling inserts. We're calling this joint the river joint and we're detailing it. And there's a lot of integrity to that because and it's very sympathetic because the shapes are dictated by the tree themselves. And this whole thing started from the fact that there was no growing taper. You know, the two outside boards are the same width at both ends. So that straight away to a woodworker or to anybody that knows about trees or forests, they will say, well, that's extraordinary. You know, clearly they've left the live edge on here. And yet these shapes are clearly dictated by the boards because the grain follows the shape. So you think, well, the god, this tree was absolutely parallel.
1: So talk a little bit more about that. It's actually fairly challenging as I was looking this to wrap my head around. You've got, so you've got these curved boards that are lining up and how do you decide where to curve it where you're following a little bit of the contour of the live edge and then you match it up but then if you've got you've got a problem if there's a little bit of a notch out of the other one where you wanted to curve it out like i imagine it must have been an extraordinary process to try to figure out how to do all the curves and how to put which position which board where so that you were minimizing the amount that you had to cut into each one
0: what we did was we actually traced each board. And we color coded them. So we knew which board was which. And we you can imagine with I mean, I know it sounds simple. But don't forget, these are 13 meters long. So you're laying these enormous rolls of tracing paper out on the floor. And you can manipulate the tracing paper over one another. And you can see exactly what's going on. But you're absolutely right. What bit do you take off which board? And do you leave them? not manipulate the board at all, but just inlay another piece of wood, an insert. Well, we had to, in the end, you can imagine trying to do that with a team of people all having their say. So in the end, we had a lead designer and he's Mauro DeLorco. And in the end, you know, he decided, he just said, well, look, that's a beautiful shape. That's not so nice. We're going to manipulate that. We're going to leave that the integrity of that board and we're going to, you know, but fundamentally, we were taking the absolute minimum amount off each board. But you can't have a big gap in a table where a wine glass is going to fall through it. You know, you've, you've got to be practical. So you want to retain the integrity, but you also want to create, you want to have creative input and you want to create an unprecedented work of art. So you do have to have input. But no, it was it was a tricky one. It was a very tricky one
1: as we're picturing this so I know that we know the length of this how wide is this with and without those two additional boards on the ends
0: well it's about 900 mil wide when it's folded but when it's when the two boards are extended up obviously they've got live edges and they're bookmatched. matched
1: so how much is 900 mil for uh for us regular folks
0: it must be um just over three foot but when it's extend when the two outer boards are folded up then it it becomes 1.6 meters so that's five foot just over five foot wide mm-hmm. enough for, for what we call shared access so you can pass something to your opposite just and you can actually talk to the person opposite so we wanted to make it as wide as possible and it varies you know it varies because it is they are live edges but also they are book matched. so if you imagine if there's any curve it's it's doubled. Do you see what I mean? If it's not dead straight, then it's twice as not straight. If you see what I mean, you know, because because they're bookmatched, so they're identical. They're mirrored. in fact, all the boards are mirrored.
1: So, so that but the river joints, the river joints
0: themselves are just quite extraordinary to see. I mean, we join timber in its width all the time. You know, you can't. Some of the things we need to create out of wood, you know, cre- trees just don't grow that wide. So you have to join in the width. But I've never seen, well, obviously not on this scale, but I don't think I've ever seen timber joined in its width where you're sort of following the grain. You know, it's quite an unusual thing to do, but it's beautiful. And also, you know, rivers feature quite heavily in the fens. They're quite an important feature. And because because we've detailed each river joint by just a tiny V, so there's a 45-degree chamfer, taken off each board. So when it comes together, it forms a V. And that is what you call a a shadow gap. Well, it's not a gap, but it forms a shadow. So you can see that. And when the light hits that, it does look just like a river.
1: So that's a fairly sophisticated cut that you're doing there, where you're doing it at an angle and it's curved at the same time. And so you're matching up the two pieces, both both curved linearly along the length, but then also at an angle. So I would imagine that the tolerance there for the two pieces coming together would have to be very tight, no?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the putting the chamfer on is not that difficult because there are cutters that are designed to do that. You know, once you've got your your shape, you can do the chamfer afterwards. You can use the shape of your river joint as the datum for putting your chamfer on, if you see what I mean. That's can be very consistent. The difficulty, and my God, was it difficult, was actually producing a perfect river joint. If you look at the photographs, the detail on it, because we have tried to follow the grain very carefully, the detail... The shapes are very detailed. You know, when you look at it, when you look at it in some of the photographs, they just look sort of gentle curves. Well, they're not, you know, because they are following the grain. There's lots of lumps and bumps and, and you've got to mash those up absolutely perfectly. And also you've got to fold the thing down so you can pull those apart. It's so brilliant because you're not expecting that. I mean, it's quite weird to see boards joined in this way anyway. And then you snap it apart You just pull it apart and it folds down. It's a beautiful thing and very unexpected.
1: I would imagine hopefully someday I'll get a chance to see it in person. So that kind of brings us back up to the present in terms of the building of this. But before wrapping up, I want to look back maybe a little bit. One of the things I noticed as I was reading the articles about the subject was how often Uh, the woodworkers, craftsmen, will talk about the people they've trained under. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the system of apprenticeship and the role of kind of lineage among woodworkers and craftsmen.
0: No, it's very important. Um, Well, I say it's very important. Who you've worked for is, is your qualification, really. Because if you've survived within or done well, haven't been fired from a very well-established workshop, then you must be pretty good at what you do. And there's a great tradition in Western Europe of, of long apprenticeships. That is how you learn. If I was, yeah, I'm very, very dyslexic. And actually, that is actually quite good. Because apparently we see things in pictures. But you don't, in other words, you can't really go for an interview as a cabinet maker and sort of be appointed on the strength of an interview. Whenever I have been offered a job, I have had to make something. Now they have given me something to make. I mean, they've wanted to talk to me and they've wanted to find out your sort of personality if you like because they know what you've got to have a lot of humility for a start you know the thing about apprenticeships is you have nowhere to hide you know if when you're working with somebody or under somebody when you make a mistake bang is there he knows he's seen it so you can't blame it on anyone else you can't pretend it hasn't happened. And it teaches you that, actually, if you make a mistake and have the humility to accept that you've made a mistake. The person I worked under, who who was the biggest inspiration to me, said, if you've never made a mistake, you've never made anything. And, he, and he's right. And that and, and so, but for example, preserving bog oak, the amount of times it all went wrong. But rather than say, oh, this is impossible, you know, it's it's not worth the trouble. And, you know, it's just I can't, you know, you just can't do it. I've said, what have I done wrong? What do I have to if something goes wrong nine times out of ten? It's your fault. That's what I think. And, and the fact is, if you take that view, then you can apply yourself differently to it. Work out what you've done wrong and then. Do it right. You see, that is the difference between, I suppose, a craftsman of anything. And, well, yeah, I I just think that that is a very, very important way of learning how to make things, is to accept that you will make a mistake and that if things go wrong, nine times out of ten, it will be your fault. Doing an apprenticeship, you don't just learn sort of manual dexterity or, you know, to identify species and things like that. You actually... You actually learn the sort of attitude you have to have in order to make things firstly really well and secondly, make them really well, really quickly, because that's the difference between, you know, a master craftsman and an amateur is a a craftsman will be able to earn a living at it. And also there's an aesthetic to things that are made quickly, I think.
1: So you can tell just by looking at it whether this was something that had a lot of time and love put into it or whether it was just kind of hacked together.
0: Yeah, put it this way. That again, the chap that I used to work with, I uh, work under, he he once saw me when I first went to work under him. He he's he, I was making a series of drawers for a desk he was making and I was trying the dovetails. It's a way of joining two bits of timber together, basically. But I was trying the dovetails before I assembled the whole drawer and he said what are you doing and I said well I just want to make sure that it fits and perhaps take a little bit off here and a little bit off there he said no 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 no, no. cut it first time cut it right and, and know that it's going to fit and assemble it in one go and he said your joints will be crisper neater cleaner by virtue of the fact that you haven't fiddled about with them and trimmed them and and he said you've got to have you've got to visualize it going together beautifully before you cut it and then it will apparently a lot of sports people the ball game sports people they visualize what they're doing before they do it and it it just happens you know whether that's true or not who knows but but actually there was a lot of what he said was true and then of course you you don't Try them, you cut them with a view to them going together first time, and you assemble the thing and you just do it. You just do it. He's, he was absolutely right. But you see, working under someone teaches you. And he was such a decent bloke. He was such a nice guy. He had plenty of time. He wasn't really strict. I mean, he was very, very disciplined. You know, he wasn't very sympathetic to your, <laughs> to your ineptitude. <laughs> I just thought, God, I actually want to be like you. Not only do I want to be as good as you at what you do, I actually quite would quite like to be like you. And actually, it's only later in life you realize, well, the two things are connected. You know, he was really good at what he did because of the way, because of his attitude. And that's what an apprenticeship should really teach you. Does that answer your question?
1: That's the perfect answer to the question. Thank you. Uh, Where can people find out more about your work and see images of uh, the Jubilee table?
0: It's www.thefenlandblackoakproject.co.uk, I think.
1: We'll make sure to put a link to it on the webpage here for us.
0: We're still still desperate for fun, so we want to do an educational display because that, that period in human development is very interesting nomadic family groups wandering through these colossal forests and the very early start of farming, you know, or uh, very rudimentary settlements. I don't know. I just think it's quite an extraordinary time in human development, really. And what cataclysmic event devastated these ancient high forests? You know, there's just so much I don't know, really. It's a fascinating time.
1: For sure, for sure. Hamish, thank you for coming on The Filter.
0: You're welcome. Very welcome.
1: Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.